Welcome to VHA Innovation Ecosystem, a podcast from the Veterans Health Administration that focuses on all the great innovative work driven by VA employees to improve veteran care. I'm Brian Stevenson and the host of this podcast. Many veterans, particularly younger ones, do not understand the benefits of establishing preferences for their care well in advance of when they might become sick or are otherwise incapable of making decisions. This episode will feature three different efforts to improve patient understanding and encourage patients to think about and plan for future medical and treatment decisions. These practices have been developed and implemented by VA employees that aim to help veterans better understand and prepare for care decisions. Our first practice is advanced care planning via group visits, which uses an interactive and patient-centered group session to engage veterans and their caregivers in thinking about and planning for future medical decisions. The groups, led by social workers or other health professionals, have participants across a broad range of ages, backgrounds, and needs. Listen on for a conversation between Megan Shaheen, a member of the VA Innovation Support Team, and two members of the Advanced Care Planning via Group Visits Team, Dr. Kimberly Garner, Associate Director of Vision 16, Little Rock Geriatric Research, Education, and Clinical Center, and Laura Taylor, National Director, Social Work Care Management and Social Work. Advanced care planning is a process for identifying and communicating an individual's values and preferences regarding future health care for use at a time when that person is no longer capable of making health care decisions. And this may occur in or outside of healthcare settings. It can be done with anyone who has decision-making capacity, and it may or may not involve the healthcare professionals directly. So our approach is using a group setting, so a group of veterans, their families, and caregivers to have a conversation, a discussion about advanced care planning topics. What problem were you aiming to solve with this practice? So many veterans, particularly younger veterans, do not understand the benefits of of establishing the preferences for their care in an advanced care directive. And advanced healthcare planning is often not addressed during routine medical appointments, or at least not to the to the point where the different complexities around this discussion are able to be accurately um, conveyed and communicated. So advanced care planning via group visits uses an interactive and patient-centered group setting to engage veterans, their caregivers, and, and family members about thinking and planning for these future medical decisions. Could you speak a little bit more to exactly what an advanced directive is and why it's important and maybe why it's important for populations at all ages? And this is Laura. The only thing I would add is that an advanced directive is a written statement by a person over the age of 18 who has decision-making capacity regarding preferences about their future healthcare decisions in that event that they're unable to make those decisions known. 
So while verbal statements may also be extremely useful in determining the prior preferences of a veteran or a patient who, you know, who we need to understand, the healthcare team needs to understand what their decisions are or choices would have been. The statements that have been committed in writing in a formal advanced directive document are, are really um, given that special authority for the healthcare team to know what that person's preferences are. And I would just also add, Laura, that through advanced care planning, a process um, we can come up with that written document in a very effective and efficient process so that not only is it just the written document, but with the information about communicating this information to your loved ones, even the people outside of that surrogate decision maker or your healthcare provider, critical processes for advanced care planning are completed if an advanced directive is just filled out without those things happening, sometimes that communication gap can create maybe not as effective uh, situation or document that the providers and the, and the surrogate can guide and achieve the veteran's wishes. Can you speak briefly to the benefits of having veterans get together in a group setting versus sort of one-on-one interactions with medical providers? One of the things that we thought when we first did the group visits was that the probably the primary benefit of it would be the efficiency in, in that you could talk to multiple veterans at once instead of having to repeat this in, uh, in individual sessions. And that is a very important part of what we're doing. But one of the things that has emerged out of this process is that the group listening and hearing to each other and learning from each other and hearing other veterans' experiences has been tremendously valuable. The dynamic changes when you have five or six to eight veterans in a group and they're all talking about their experiences and learning from each other. And the provider or the staff person is a facilitator who just kind of gets the conversation going and kind of keeps, you know, and maybe if there's any questions about a specific detail, answers that question. Um, that has been so such a powerful point. And I think it kind of, in Laura's previous comment, and when she quoted a veteran from Little Rock, that, you know, they heard something that they might not have ever thought of themselves. And that's one thing that I hear from a lot of veterans is I heard, I heard from another veteran something that I don't think I would have thought of myself. Can you speak briefly about any of the challenges you might have faced when the practice was initially implemented and maybe any that you faced while trying to scale? Yeah, this is Laura. I'd be happy to talk um, briefly about some of the challenges that um, the advanced care planning via group visit program faced when it was initially implemented. Um, So like any new initiative that's being implemented, we have been challenged to get the word out far and wide to locate those individuals who can serve as champions in their facility, in the field, across the healthcare system, and then can lead the program implementation in their site. We've offered several conference calls and presentations to mitigate this challenge and will continue to do so because just it's communicate, communicate, communicate to get the word out. Thank you, Laura. Um, Yes, we have been able to work 
And this is something that has, I don't think has been uh, available uh, easily in, within the VA before to have one dashboard where we can see the number of advanced directives completed in a period of time, the number of advanced directive discussion note titles, which means a discussion was had with a veteran about advanced care planning, uh, and the direct, directive note is a note that is created if they actually complete an advanced directive. And also, we're able to see how many veterans are attending a advanced care planning uh, group visit. And I'm happy to tell you that we just recently celebrated 10, over 10,000 veterans having attended a group visit since this was uh, rolled out. And I believe that was in February of 2017 that we started rolling this out nationally. And you can correct me on that, Laura, if I'm wrong. Uh, but we're extremely excited. While we've had some challenges with um, getting the word out as much as we would like to, we do feel like we've made significant progress in the just a little over a year and a half that we've been doing this. Are there any stories you have from the provider perspective on on how this might be helpful for a provider when trying to honor a patient's wishes? Well, I can tell you we've had uh, some social workers attend uh, the group visits that were not facilitating, and they told us they went home and talked with their families, and it was amazing that even though they had that ex- they had that knowledge and experience that their families wanted different things than they thought so it was very instructive for the for the staff to hear these discussions i will tell you we've had several providers tell us you know this is very difficult conversation the length of it to have in a traditional appointment so they are relieved that we are having these discussions in a in in this setting which kind of unloads that complex, time-consuming conversation um, from their workload. They refer patients all the time, veterans all the time, because they said, you know, they have the time to sit down and talk with you and kind of have a a discussion about this so that you can really understand how this will benefit you. Um, So most of our providers have been relieved that their veterans can have this kind of discussion. And then if they just have some specific questions about their healthcare or questions about uh, treatments, they can come and talk to them about that. But it really unloads a kind of time-consuming conversation from an already very busy uh, encounter. I know you have done an incredible job of collecting data. Dr. Garner is a researcher by training and, and background. Can you speak a little bit to the statistics surrounding the practice? So how many sites it's been implemented at how many veterans it's touched? Any other any other data or information you would like to share? So the Advanced Care Planning Via Group Visit Program is currently offered in 28 VA sites. And there are another 30, nearly 30 sites who are exploring the possibility of implementing the program. They're kind of in that contemplative or pre-contemplative stage of the you know, deciding whether or not it's something they may want to implement. As Dr. Garner mentioned earlier, we just celebrated serving 10,000 veterans through the program. And our long-term plan is really for advanced care planning via group visits to be offered in every VA facility nationwide. And I would just add from the data that has been reported to us about 18 to 20% of veterans who attend one group create a new advanced directive. 
many of the veterans who come to our groups already have an advanced directive, so many of them update, but we don't count that as a a new one um, if it's just an update. Um, And I will tell some stories, uh, too, on this one. We print out, if possible, a veteran's advanced directive if they already have one. Many of them who receive that advanced directive are surprised that they have one because if they've just filled it out as a form, they may not remember it or remember to update it. So many of them, the person that they've selected is not the person they still want because it may be an ex-wife or previous person in their life that they would not want making decisions uh, currently. And so it's been very interesting um, as we print those out and let them review what they've said before and or who they've uh, named that the importance of, of regularly reviewing this and making sure that's still the most correct person and the person who can best serve them as a decision maker. Do you have any times that you can think of specifically that we haven't touched on already? Any interactions you've had with veterans that really had a strong impact on you as a provider? Well, I know I, I kind of mentioned it, but when the veteran told me, thank you for caring enough about us to share this with us or to tell us about this, I hear fairly frequently from veterans that they appreciate being told proactively about things um, and not having to hunt that information down themselves or figure it out themselves. So I think veterans really appreciate our being very proactive and, and coming to them and sharing this with them. So last couple questions. How do you define success for advanced care planning via group visits? Well, I would just say that to me, if we can move a veteran forward in uh, what I call stage of change, that's really one of the theoretical basis for this project is the trans-theoretical model stage of change. If we can take a veteran from pre-contemplative or contemplative about advanced care planning and move them towards steps of, of actually achieving that goal, I think we've been successful. Yes, I would like to have every veteran have an advanced directive. I know that's probably not possible, but I I would like for them to document those conversations and that that process. And I will say I kind of liken it to informed consent. In informed consent, you need to know all your options and have discussed and that and evaluated and considered all those options and made an informed decision about any kind of treatment or process. Uh, And then you document that in an informed consent document. But the document is not the most important thing. The most important thing is the considering and weighing and coming up with a decision that is right for you as a person in an informed consent process. To me, advanced care planning is just like that. The process of thinking about what's important to you, what your values are, what you would want, and communicating that with your family and your healthcare provider is the process that we're trying to achieve. The advanced directive is evidence of that. It is the documentation that shows what's been done. And I would like for people to understand that if you just fill out a form without really a lot of thought, it might not be as effective or valuable to you or to your family when it comes time to be needed. And my definition of success for advanced care planning via group visits is that every veteran who is interested in participating in a conversation in a group setting about advanced care planning has access to do so, whether that be in person, in a physical room together, 
or online through a virtual modality, that they would have the access to be able to discuss these um, very important topics um, with a trained facilitator and um, in the same presence um, or benefiting from their peers who may also have questions and concerns around the same topic. Secondary to that, my definition of success is that we would have advanced care planning via group visits offered in all of our sites as just one of our standards of care and practice across the healthcare system in VA. Next, we will hear from Elizabeth Williams, an innovation specialist at Gulf Coast Veterans Healthcare System, about the life-sustaining treatment veteran education video practice. While the VA National Center of Ethics and Healthcare provides materials and guidelines on self-sustaining treatments, this video aims to supplement those resources and help veterans who are visual learners to optimize their decision-making regarding life-sustaining treatments. I'll turn the podcast over to Blake Henderson from the Diffusion of Excellence Initiative, who will be interviewing Elizabeth about the practice. The project really came about a couple of years ago. I was working in the intensive care unit for the ICU as a staff nurse, and it was pretty common practice to see providers talking with veterans about their end-of-life care and what we called code status discussions. And so during those discussions, um, providers would talk with patients about things such as mechanical ventilation, intubation, dialysis, um, and more things that could prolong or sustain their life. And what I began to notice is that over the years, no two providers were having the same conversation with the veteran. So for instance, One provider may be really thorough in his conversation and spend a lot of time with the veteran really trying to explain and illustrate what these treatments were, while another provider may simply say, do you want us to do everything that we can to keep you alive? And so the conversations weren't consistent. And so I started really advocating for the providers here in Biloxi to have very thorough um, conversations with the veterans because I felt like they needed you know, the most information that they could get to make these decisions. So once we began advocating for that here in Biloxi, I started to notice something else that was unexpected. So the providers were having more consistent, thorough conversations, but the patient might not really quite understand correctly what the providers were talking about. I'll give you an example. So one day I was taking care of a really, really sick veteran. Um, He was declining pretty rapidly and he was having some respiratory difficulty and would likely need extra breathing support in the near future. And so the provider went in and had a really thorough conversation with him about intubation and mechanical ventilation and possible complications where um, he could have something called a tracheostomy. Uh, which is something that's either permanent or um, semi-permanent or reversible, but it's essentially a tube in the throat that would help him to breathe. You know, we spent a lot of time talking with the veteran, and the veteran consented to this procedure of, you know, mechanical ventilation with the possibility of a trach. 
And so fast forward a little bit, unfortunately, the patient declined. He did end up on the ventilator and he did end up with a tracheostomy. Once he began to sort of heal and he came off of the ventilator, he came off of his sedation. So during that process, while he was sedated, he wasn't conscious or aware of, you know, exactly what was going on. And in some of his first few sort of lucid moments, he was very confused and that's common. And so, you know, I spoke with him and talked with him about what had happened and he couldn't understand why he couldn't talk. And so I explained his tracheostomy to him. He eventually, um, you know, looked at it in the mirror and he was just very angry, very upset. And so in the ensuing few days, we worked out a method for him to communicate. He began writing messages to um, family and nursing staff. And it turns out that the reason that he was so upset and so frustrated is that when the provider was talking to him about possible complications and tracheostomy, he had something different in his mind. He was visualizing something very different than a tracheostomy. And after further conversation, what the veteran was picturing was something called a BiPAP machine. And this is essentially a mask um, that goes over the mouth and the nose, and it has a tube that's connected to a machine, but it's very invasive. Um, it's not permanent. And it's often used to treat sleep apnea, is it not? Right, exactly, exactly. And so, but this was something that he had visualized in the past with one of his friends. And so when the provider was talking to him about, you know, this thing that it goes by your throat and it's connected to a tube to the machine to help you breathe, this is what he pictured in his mind. And so later he learned to talk with his trait. And thankfully he did really well after that. But he returned to the hospital and we had a conversation, he and I, and he told me that, you know, he ultimately would have rather died than to now live with this tube in his throat. It must have been really hard to, to hear. It was. It was. You know, he said if he knew that this is what the provider was talking about, he would have said no on the front end. This made a huge impact in me, and I knew that I needed to do something about the problem. There was an issue, clearly. There was a learning gap between conversations about um, these important things and what veterans understood or took from that. Wow. So it's, if I could replay that a bit, you you solved for one problem and that you were able to start to standardize some of this educational delivery. And then you kind of uncovered a, another one, which was in some cases a, a gap in, in learning. Is that accurate? Yes, that's accurate. So how did you go about kind of solving for that, that second problem? I realized that there was a huge gap. As an ICU nurse, you know, I saw many examples of this occurring. You know, I'm not going to say this was an everyday occurrence, but one time is enough for something like that to happen. And so I started talking to veterans. You know, I talked to them in the hospital. I talked to them in the clinic. And I really started to explore their learning preferences and um, talked with them about how do they learn best. and you know, what options are you provided for learning here at VA and do, do they work? Is there something else that could help? And so um, I started using a lot of human-centered design principles and just working with them to try to problem solve and to, to close this gap. Um, you know, there's 
lots of materials that are available. We have brochures and handouts and pictures on the wall and different little charts hanging, but there was still there was still a gap. And so a few of the different themes that kind of emerged from those conversations is that, you know, veterans learn in a wide variety of ways. And there wasn't really an overwhelming majority. But what really struck me is that they expressed a huge lack of alternative learning options. And so I would hear things from veterans like, I don't even know why they asked me how I learn best because they don't give me the information how I need it. And that really struck me as well, because as an inpatient nurse, he was right. On admission, we asked, how do you learn best hearing, seeing, or doing? And we document this in their record. But then what do we do with that information? Do we present them um, educational material, how they learn best? And so he, you know, he was right. And one of the other things that sort of struck me was that, and it, and it kind of gave birth to the video concept, is that many of the veterans were telling me, I don't need someone to just tell me. I don't need them to explain it to me. I need to see it. If I've never heard it before, it's foreign to me and I need to see it. And I'm much like those type people. I need to see things to know what they are if I've, you know, never heard of it or first seen it before. I'm the same way. How have the clinicians reacted to this effort to try to standardize some of the education? So the project, when it started in 2015, um, we were really just aiming to standardize the conversations and to provide this audiovisual um, sort of learning method for the veterans at that time. After we developed the concept, I became aware of an initiative called the Life Sustaining Treatment Decision Initiative um, that was being piloted by the National Center for Ethics and Healthcare. And it was all about standardizing um, end-of-life care, terminology, treatment, goals, um, decisions, and documentation, training for providers and clinicians. At that time, the problem of consistency was sort of being addressed on a national level. And so this was going to be a national mandate, and it was going to, you know, affect the providers from that level. As far as the gap that still remained with the audiovisual learning, the providers, too, recognized that it was an issue here locally in, in Biloxi. Um, you know, we talked to them, and, and they would say sometimes, can you show him a picture? Can you pull it up on the Internet so I can show this to him? He doesn't understand what I'm talking about, you know, and so... They were very excited about having this method to kind of um, not replace the conversations that they were having, but to, to add to those conversations. Can you talk a little bit about the development timeline for the video? We recently partnered with the National Center for Ethics on uh, this project. They are the subject matter experts for life-sustaining treatments. And so before we partnered with them, we had planned to film independently and release the video uh, here at Gulf Coast and uh, work on spreading. But since we've now partnered with the National Center for Ethics, we've pushed that back a little bit. Um, we are in the process of developing the script right now, and we plan to have the script completed by October the 1st, and we will start production soon thereafter in the November-December timeframe, and we are planning for an early uh, to mid-spring release in 2019.
still have some things to work out uh, regarding the production. We did just secure where we are going to film. And so we're going to film in Salt Lake City, Utah, and we are really looking forward to it. So it's been really neat hearing your story. I feel like most of the time when we talk to innovators or Gold Status Fellows, they don't always realize that, at, at least at the start, that when they are they set out to solve a problem, that they're really signing up for a, a journey, you know, and that you climb, exactly. you climb, one, you climb one hill and inev- inevitably there, you find that there's another hill around the corner or sometimes it's a mountain. So, you know, you've done a tremendous amount, you know, already climbing a couple of hills. You know, it seems like you're well on your way to, to getting this video produced. Our final interview is with the nonprofit National Resource Center on Psychiatric Advanced Directives, which provides clinicians, patients, and policymakers with current information on Psychiatric Advanced Directives, or PADS. PADS are a relatively new legal instrument for ensuring personal medical preferences for future mental health treatment. I'll once again turn the podcast over to Megan Shaheen, who will be interviewing Dr. Marvin Swartz, the co-director of the organization. So people with severe mental illness uh, sometimes experience crises where they can't communicate effectively or give details or histories about their illnesses or make decisions about their health care. And so as a result, providers may have to step in and make decisions for them without the requisite information and then make decisions that the individual might not want, including involuntarily committing them because they aren't able to give consent. So what an advanced instruction in mental health and a healthcare power of attorney, what they jointly create are mechanisms to provide needed treatment information, and a person, a proxy, to speak for the person who's incapacitated during a crisis. So to disseminate information about these mechanisms and how they can be used to the benefit of uh, individuals with severe mental illness, their families and providers, the National Resource Center on Psychiatric Advanced Directive was established Uh, over a decade ago as a virtual learning community dedicated to educating consumers, families, and healthcare providers about PADS, uh, psychiatric advanced directives, we call them PADS often, and how they work and state-specific information about the availability in particular states. What problem is NRC PAD aiming to solve or address? So we believe that there's great benefit Uh, for people with severe mental illness. So people who do have periods of in which they're incapacitated, so can't think straight, can't communicate effectively, just can't represent themselves effectively during a crisis. We think that uh, advanced instructions and, and their companion, the healthcare power of attorney, has great benefit for those people so that even during the crises, they get the treatment that they would prefer so that they don't lose their ability to speak for themselves because what these documents do is create a mechanism for the person to speak for themselves and and maintain control over their treatment. You know, all too often, 
when people go into crises, people do things, you know, providers do things to them or take control of their treatment away. And sometimes that's not what they prefer or what they want. And often in that situation, when a person can't consent to treatment, then uh, treatment has to be administered involuntarily. And that can have consequences that's distressing to a person with severe mental illness. The problem we're trying to address is that these mechanisms are out there. These legal tools are out there, but not that many people know about them. And we'd like more widespread knowledge and tools to use them to be available. You mentioned you've been around for about 10 years. What events catalyzed the establishment of your group? We're based at Duke University in North Carolina. And when we saw that our state legislature passed this legislation in the late 90s, we were very interested in trying to understand what motivated legislators and their constituencies to pass the legislation. So where was this coming from? And what would be its penetration? Would people start to complete advanced directives? How would they do that? What use would they put to them? And so we wanted to um, support this as a national initiative because uh, there's been waves of states that have done this since the late 90s. Uh, so we wanted to understand these developments, but we also wanted to support people who wanted to use them and then also understand the use they put them to. One of the frustrating pieces that we're trying to address is that not unlike uh, advanced directives in general medical care, there's a big gap between people's interest in having them and successfully completing one. Many people or maybe even most people with severe mental illness, don't have the means to hire a private attorney to complete them. And there's very few resources, publicly available resources, to complete them. We call that facilitation. So we have developed a way for uh, laypersons to assist individuals and families in creating them in common language and constructing the legal documents following the regulatory framework required to complete one and put them uh, in place in healthcare records or in virtual vaults where they're stored. So we wanted to facilitate people's use of them, and we recognized that there was a big gap between interest in them, which we studied in the survey, and the actual creation of advanced directives. I mean, it is great to see these national efforts, you know, starting the conversation that um, IHI is sponsoring, a, a number of national organizations are trying to get, help people think about advanced care planning in the medical arena. But, and there's, there's a ton to do. For example, often family members aren't on the same page about how to interpret a person's wishes. So how do you get family members on the same page. Well, you have the same place, the same situation, psychiatric advance directives. Once the person drafts them, how does how does the family member who's going to be involved understand and how do the different family members understand what the person's wishes are and how they might honor them? Well, who should have a psychiatric advance directive? We think 
that people who have had an incapacitating illness, so say they've had schizophrenia and they've uh, had a psychotic episode or have bipolar disorder and have had a severe crisis. So people who have an illness that at its peak causes confusion, inability to make decisions, inability to think rationally, those are the sorts of people who, who should have them. There's also people who learn their diagnosis and say, gee, I know I could become confused and incapacitated, and so they they might do them as well. So it's this maybe 5% of, of, of the population or that subset of people with severe enough mental illness that they worry that they'll um, get into a crisis in which they can't speak for themselves. One of the things I that's important to recognize is that these documents make decisions. So they say, if, for example, I get sick and I can't speak for myself, you have my permission to admit me to this hospital, or my proxy has permission to admit me to this hospital or this hospital. And that's legally actionable. So in the states in which these things exist, one has the legal right to do that and for it to be effective. So does a psychiatric advance directive include more information than a traditional advance directive would? Yes, because it tries to give the people encountering them information about how to manage the crisis. Since, as I said before, it's not about end of life, it's really about managing an ongoing crisis. And so there's information about, you know, who to contact, um, who might be helpful, how to interpret some behaviors, what are things that might uh, help the person uh, settle down and calm, calm themselves. So there's a, a sort of a range of information that's put into these things to help uh, address a crisis, not necessarily just address uh, end-of-life issues. What are some of the barriers to adoption you've faced um, that may have either prevented people from completing psychiatric advance directives or prevented them from being effectively used? Yeah, one of the frustrating things about psychiatric advance directives, and, and they share this with medical advance directives, is that passing a law saying something should happen doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to happen that laws need implementation plans. They need a way to take effect in the community that they're living in, if you can refer to a law as living. Very few states have actually set up ways to implement psychiatric advance directives and make, make the resources available to people to make them real. And that's where we're trying to assist is to help states with this type of implementation. What we've seen, and we did a survey maybe about 10 years ago, in which we went to five communities in, in the country and surveyed individuals with severe mental illness, and they said, and said to them, would you like one of these documents? You know, would you like to have one of these if someone helped you fill it out? And two-thirds of people said, yes, we would want one. Then when we said, well, do you have one, maybe 3 to 5% said they, they had one. So there's a big gap between 
what people had and, you know, what they would want. Can you speak about the benefits that psychiatric advanced directives might provide to veterans and their caregivers? One of the benefits of advanced directives, psychiatric advanced directives, may be that often veterans go in and out of the VA system. That, for example, they in one crisis they may go to a local hospital, but in another crisis or for routine care, they may go to their VA. And this is, as you know, very common among veterans is that they move in and out of the VA system and have different providers and don't necessarily get all their care exclusively at the VA. So one of the benefits an advanced directive can have is that it documents a person's preferences across the different places in which they'd get care. So we think it might have real benefit, particularly when people are using different facilities, that it's a way to try to integrate the care plan for that individual. What is one specific improvement for veteran mental health you would like to see happen in the next few years? I I think one of the things that would greatly assist veterans is being able to walk in the different doors Uh, where they get care and have the same um, orientation to treatment. So I think, unfortunately, there's veterans who go to a lot of different places for care during crises and not crises. And having a mechanism to integrate the care a little bit better, which we think advanced directives can do, uh, might be a big assistance to, to veterans. Thanks for listening to this episode of the VHA Innovation Ecosystem Podcast. We hope you learned something about VA and the work employees are doing to improve care for veterans, and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode. Until next time.